Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this episode, my co-host, Dr. Ashley Brissett, is busting some of the common myths in ophthalmology. In the digital age, it's common to see misinformation spread like wildfire, and we'll often see these myths come up in questions asked by patients or even friends and family members. We're very excited to have Dr. Ruth Williams join to discuss these myths, such as cannabis treatment for glaucoma, blue light filtering glasses, the efficacy of laser vision correction, and how we can gracefully dispel misinformation. Coming up on Off the Grid. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us again for Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is my third and last co-hosting of this amazing podcast with Blake. So thank you so much to Blake for asking me to do this. I've had a really wonderful time, and I'm actually very excited about the last podcast because we're actually going to touch on myth-busting in ophthalmology. I mean, there's so much that goes around that gets spread either on social media or even just word of mouth from our patients that we continuously hear some of these same myths over and over again. And I know whenever any of us have probably traveled home for the holidays when we used to be able to do that, you'd have you know people coming up to you asking you your opinion about, say, cannabis and glaucoma or they would ask you about LASIK. Does LASIK really work? Does it wear off? And so there's all these kind of common questions that we get. And so when Blake and I were talking about topics, we really wanted to do something about myth busting to get really to the scientific evidence behind some of these myths and are they true and are they not? And I could not think of a better person to ask on for this last podcast that I'm co-hosting than Dr. Ruth Williams. She is the past president of the American Academy of Ophthalmology and she has a whole host of other duties which she's going to tell us about because there's just so many of us hard for me to pick from her um, amazing CV to really highlight what uh, what is important. So I'll allow her to do that. So Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Ashley. It's really um, a pleasure to be here and kind of fun too. Well, I've had, I, I do have a, a fabulous career. I love ophthalmology. I think ophthalmology is a remarkable specialty, partly because of its people. Um, ophthalmologists have so much energy and innovation. Um, what we do is so positive for people. So I love my colleagues. I um, have had many different jobs during the course of my career. And and the ones that have been most meaningful to me was I ran our large ophthalmology group practice for eight years. Um, That group, we have about 33 ophthalmologists in our group. And um, it's a private practice that has remained independent even during this private equity acquisition period of ophthalmology, we've made a growth strategy to remain independent. As as you mentioned, I'm past president of the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and I'm currently chief medical editor of INET Magazine, a job I love. (laughs) And you've been doing such a wonderful job with that, especially your pandemic issue, which came out last year. I mean, you guys were so amazing at getting that information out so fast. It was such a whirlwind of everything that was happening. And as ophthalmologists, I completely felt like we needed to share that information about what was going on at that time. 
So your work with INET and, and putting out all the information so fast was so wonderful. So well, we wondered at the time because the pandemic was unfolding so quickly and changing so much and we're print medium, which is so much slower than, you know, all the other ways we communicate. And so we thought, what can we do that's meaningful? And so we really looked for things that um, were very important, but could be communicated better in print than any other way. So we really looked at stories about people and how, and you were one of them, um, how, how people coped during the pandemic and how it was changing them and how they were taking care of patients and how it was impacting ophthalmology specifically. So it, it continues to be interesting. Oh, I agree. It's continuing to, you know, impact the way that we manage patients and that we, you know, manage diseases going forward. So I agree the way that we share information now has become so, um, I don't know if sudden is the right word, but we just have this information right at our fingertips available to us if we want it. But then the counter to that is the spread of misinformation. So sometimes things can come about so quickly that we're like, well, wait, where did we hear this? Where did this information come from? Um, and one thing that I get asked a fair bit, and I'm sure you get asked about this a lot more because of your background in glaucoma, but is the use of marijuana and glaucoma. Um, I think that's something that, you know, people love to ask about, people love to speak about across social media. Um, and so I wonder, you know, especially with your work in glaucoma, what does the research actually show us? Is this a myth or is there actually some truth behind it, the use with marijuana and glaucoma? Well, both. Um, there's a lot of myth behind um, people's perceptions of um, uh, marijuana and glaucoma, but there's also some truth there too. So um, what's interesting about it is um, there's a lot of science behind it, but the mythology part of it persists over my career in medicine. The things I say to my patients isn't all that different than what we said, you know, 25 years ago. So um, I get asked, oh, probably once or twice a week by patients about using cannabis or marijuana um, for the treatment of glaucoma. And I'm always surprised by who asks me. So, you, you know, you get these ideas about who the people are that are interested, but that's not accurate. So, you know, the uh, darling, uh, you know, little old ladies uh, with glaucoma want to know about it too. So that's my number one takeaway is don't have preconceptions about who needs to learn about cadmus and glaucoma. But um, basically, there have been some very good studies, some recent and some a long time ago that um, demonstrate that um, both smoking and injecting cannabis can lower intraocular pressure. So that is true. Um, the, as far as smoking and inhaling cannabis is, um, it, it can lower your pressures, um, for about three or four hours. And what I like to tell my patients is, you know, this is a reasonable treatment. It's not reasonable, but you know, you'd have to smoke a joint every three hours and they always laugh and, you know, but it's true. You, you know, it, we have effective medicines that you can use once or twice a day that give you a really nice dose response curve, but you know, marijuana, um, really doesn't last that long. The other thing I tell them, which is true is that, you know, other things that depress the central nervous system also lower eye pressure and we don't recommend that. So you could have a whiskey every, you know, several hours and that would help too, but they're not really adequate treatments. That's interesting. And so like, how do you then bring that up with your patients? So if somebody, are they often asking you or do you just preemptively when you're talking to them about therapeutic options, do you say, you know, and also sometimes I get asked about cannabis and I'm not sure if you've heard that, like, is that something you're even bringing up or do you let them bring it up to you? 
I'd let them bring it up to me because um, the people who are curious, especially if you have a great working relationship with a patient are very comfortable asking. I keep, um, I keep a little position statement from the American Glaucoma Society. They have a really nice, well-written position statement by Henry Jampal on um, cannabis and glaucoma goes over the science. And if they ask me about it, I have it right there in my file. I pull it out, hand it to them, um, give them a few comments about it. And people really appreciate the information. Um, we had a real big uptick last year in Illinois where I, where I practice when we um, um, legalized marijuana for, just legalized it. And so a lot more people came in asking about it, but then that's tapered down again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it's right what you're saying about the American Academy of Ophthalmology. They have a great website with resources about all these commonly asked questions and even some of these myths that we're going to tackle today on the podcast. And it is a great resource because a lot of their language is appropriate for patients. And so their patient resources on the AAO.com website, they have lots of information there. So even if you as a clinician aren't sure what your statement should be, sometimes I'll refer back to the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Um, and what I looked up, you know, just in in preparation for this about their bottom line about marijuana and glaucoma is they say that they do not endorse cannabis and their derivatives as a treatment. Um, and so if patients ask me my kind of approach is I say that, you know, the AAO does not endorse it as a treatment. There's more effective and more reliable treatments, exactly as you said about the wearing off in about three hours. So right. you want something that's more reliable. And when it comes to your vision, that's something that needs to be there. We need that reliability and that safety and efficacy when it does come to vision. So definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And if, it, if patients are kind of asking you about it because they're interested in it, I think the something that's so important is to really have no judgment around it. And, you right. know, it's legalized in so many states um, that I think being able to be open, that patients can talk to you about this and not feel like it's something that they need to hide or think that they don't need to talk to you about it. And then they might go off their medications because they think that they're self-medicating in a way, but that they're afraid to tell you. I think that's also important. Yes, definitely. And there was even a recent study that um, suggests that the CBD in some cases may increase intraocular pressure in certain patients. So um, there's, there's some evidence that in some cases it might even hurt the glaucoma. Why was that? Why did CBD increase IOP? I, you know, I don't know the mechanism of action or, you know, why it would do that. I, you know, another thing we do know is that, especially if you're smoking um, marijuana, is that the cannabinoids, um, you know, in the joint are, you know, there are about 400 different cannabinoids. So you don't really know exactly what molecules you're getting sometimes. And so what, what you have in, in one formula may be very different than you have in another formula. So it's effect on the eye and the pressure can really vary from product to product. So you know, when, when you do studies, you look at product that is more refined, but that's not what people get. Yeah, that's, that's kind of true of, I think, any probably nutraceuticals that people yeah. are using, any supplements and things like that, that aren't regulated, you never really know what you're getting in it. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of like another reason to really consider and to be bringing it up with your ophthalmologist, um, so that it's something that you're aware of exactly what you're using and what the effects are. So so that's great. I, I just think that's really interesting. It's what, interesting what you said about how there's so much literature, even over the past X number of years, and we're still doing research on this and still doing studies on it. Is it something about, I think it's kind of inherent human nature, but sometimes people feel like 
some maybe natural things might be better for them. And, you know, there might not really be the understanding that, you know, we have great studies and data and safety around these medications for glaucoma, which can be really beneficial to prevent blindness. And, and sometimes, you know, thinking something's more natural and better for you might not always be the case. Definitely. And you started out um, the podcast by um, mentioning that misinformation gets out there and how do you tell the difference? And the, the whole conversation around um, marijuana and glaucoma is a misinformation campaign that's been out there for decades. And, and I, I, I want to say, oh, I can't believe we're still having this conversation. But whenever the legislation came up over the last you know number of years in uh, states for reasons to, to, to legalize, they always mention glaucoma. And I just wish they'd take that out of there because it's, it's, it's not accurate. That's interesting. And I know it's so funny thinking about as physicians, how we try in a large part to do education with our patients um, and whether we're educating on social media, which I feel like so many of our colleagues are doing right now, which is so wonderful. It's a great way to spread mm-hmm. the message. But that kind of brings me to one of our next topics, which is the blue light blocking glasses and that recent study that came out in the American Academy of Ophthalmology. And I kind of see the parallel there because, you know, we've, I'm sure in the past few years, the marketing around blue light blocking glasses has been phenomenal. I, you know, I would scroll on my Instagram or social media and get two or three ads an entire time about blue light blocking glasses. And the spread of that misinformation was somewhat hard to fight. What were your thoughts? Well, just that we were so grateful to have a a good study that came out in February in AJO that blue blockers really don't make any difference to patients who used it. I mean, it's a very practical study because it, it looked at people who were having eye strain or symptoms when they're working on their computer, which we all are. So, um, and it showed no difference between the groups that had the blue blockers and those who didn't, and they didn't know whether they, well, they all actually thought they had blue blockers. Right. So everybody in the study thought they did and half of them actually didn't, and there was no difference. So I thought that was a compelling study and really nice on social media and other places just to say, here's the data. I completely agree with you. Having the data is so important. But one thing that I found really interesting about this study as well is that they also randomly assigned those patients to either um, having a kind of advocacy that was positive or negative pre-intervention from a physician. And by that saying that, you know, they would watch like a short video and a physician would say that there was benefit to wearing the glasses. And then some participants watched one that said there was no benefit. And what they found is that a clinician advocacy had no bearing on the clinical outcome of the study. So do we really help? Are we, is our patient education actually being heard? (laughs) Well, I actually think that that supports the whole idea that blue blockers really just don't help because, (laughs) uh, because a lot of times we do have a lot of power of suggestion um, and steering patients or making them think one thing or the other, but even that didn't work. So (laughs) it's sometimes difficult. I think fighting the misinformation, what I always say to my patients is, well, especially now that we have this study that the studies don't support it. Um, And then now what I say to them is that, you know, some people might feel like it does help. And if you're one of those people, just don't spend a lot of money on a pair of glasses if you want to try it, you know, so if you're no harm in trying it, if you want to try them, but the studies don't support it. Because again, I try to be quite open and non-judgmental, and I'm not going to totally poo-poo it if somebody tells me, well, I tried my friends and I think it worked for me. Um, And so I'll say, you know, feel free to try it. Just don't spend a ton of money, but then I'll give them some other interventions that we knew that we do know helps with eye strain, like the 20-20-20 rule or artificial tears, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I tell my patients the same thing about unproven things like bilberry or, you know, um, ginkgo or well, ginkgo might actually 
take that out. That, that one has some suggestion of help, but, um, you know, I say, yeah, you can try all those things if you want or acupuncture, but yeah, don't, don't spend a lot of money and don't stop taking your glaucoma medicine. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That's at the end of the day, listen to the science. And if you want to try some other things, just make sure you're doing it in a safe, responsible way. And please don't spend a ton of money on it. That's always my advice as well. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, another myth I think that commonly gets kind of promoted is one about LASIK or just laser vision correction in general. Um, I know you're a glaucoma specialist, but I'm sure with the large group of doctors that you manage, you do a lot of laser vision correction as a part of your group. Um, you know, we do a lot at while Cornell Medicine, where I am at New York City, and there's a lot of people in New York City that are offering laser vision correction. And it's not just LASIK anymore, you know, we do PRK, SMILE, um, ICL. So there's so many different options now available for patients. And, you know, I think it's fairly life-changing for the right patients. You know, I'm a firm believer in it. I actually had it when I was in medical school. So I'm one of the proportion of physicians that had it. I think one of the myths around laser vision correction is that people think that doctors don't have it themselves or that ophthalmologists shy away from it themselves. Um, and, you know, there's studies that show that that's not true, uh, that a large number of ophthalmologists actually have it and it's highly recommended to friends and family. What's kind of your approach to the LASIK maybe myths that start to come up in, in your large practice? Yeah, well, I, I think it's most likely related to, or most of the time it's related to um, the development of presbyopia. So, pre, you know, presbyopia is, you know, a curse um, that we all get. Um, it's a little shocking when you start losing your, you know, flexibility of your lens. And so you need uh, a little extra help um, depending on your prescription, but most commonly for reading. Um, I always say that presbyopia is the first sign of aging that we can't like Think that we're going to go to the gym and you know fix it by working out or something. It's the first. It's the first real sign of aging that you know you're really stuck with. So, um, when when people say that it wears off, um, I think what they're saying is, is that you know I can I'm no longer completely glasses free and I'm really unhappy with that. But it doesn't have to do with the LASIK wearing off as as you know it well since you're a refractive surgeon. But what I tell them is that it's really that you're developing presbyopia, uh, which is the stiffening and uh, of the lens and sometimes a little yellowing of the lens. And that happens to everybody who still has a lens in the eye. So um, whether you've had LASIK or not, that's going to happen to you. And um, I, I think as a, as a refractive surgeon, I'm sure you're very good at explaining this to people and letting them know that even if they have LASIK in medical school, they're still going to get presbyopia someday. Oh, absolutely. It's so important to communicate that with people um, because then I think that information starts to spread amongst, you know, their family members or older family members that have had it in the past saying, no, 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 mine wore off. So it's not going to work for you. And again, it's, you know, really, again, doing that education as physicians, you know, and speaking to our patients and educating them so that they're really aware of the pros and cons, you know, risks and benefits of anything that we do. Um, so actually in 2019, that was the 20th anniversary of LASIK's FDA approval. Um, and we've, done probably over 20 million LASIK procedures in the US and studies quote about a 98 to 99% patient satisfaction with the procedure. Um, all those numbers I kind of got from the American Academy of Ophthalmology website and from the Refractive Surgery Alliance. So there's a ton of evidence supporting LASIK and other laser vision correction as something that can be beneficial. And I agree with you, it's that kind of misconception about it wearing off that's really just presbyopia as, as it's coming. Like you said, everybody gets this. I always say if we live long, 
enough, it's, it's coming for everybody. Um, is it really making the distinction between, you know, being able to fix your vision for when you're young, but then, you know, if we live long enough, we're all going to get to that point where we're back in glasses again. So making the distinction is important just so people understand what they're really spending their money on. I'm always surprised by the patients who say, I waited until I was 40 until I knew my eyes were stable and healthy. And now I came in from my laser vision correction kind of consultation. And I'm thinking like, you should have done this 20 years ago. Right. <laughs> live, live in the moment, right? Exactly. And I liked what you said about it being life-changing. I think in the right patient, um, refractive surgery really can be life-changing. And um, I've, I've heard people just talk about how they, they just can't believe they can get out of bed and see the, you know, see the alarm clock without having to grab their glasses. So, um, you know, and for sports, I, you know, there are just so many things that, that it makes life better for the right patients. I agree with you. I actually have a huge proportion of patients that are women that have, you know, had their first child. Um, They say to me, if something happened in the middle of the night and I couldn't find my glasses, I wouldn't be able to see to get out of the home. I wouldn't be able to see to, you know, get my family safe. And I've found that, you know, it's so difficult to understand what that would feel like or what that visually looks like if you haven't experienced that yourself. Um, So I really do think that the advent of vision correction is something that we should continue to explore. And you're completely right. It needs to be in the right patient. There's multiple different types of procedures and not every procedure is is specific for everybody. And so finding, you know, an ophthalmologist that is refractive surgery trained that can really kind of take a good look at your eyes, your vision, see what maybe goals wise is important to you and and really make a good recommendation is so important. So, well, I think it's remarkable that at this stage we have choices in which refractive procedure to choose because, you know, each has its benefits and its place. And so we can really refine the treatments for our patients more than ever. I mean, you must find that even in glaucoma and what you do, you know, having medication, lasers, MIGs, you know, larger procedures, you have so much available to you now. Yeah. I used to talk, you know, we used to have algorithms for treatment. So when I was a resident or a a glaucoma fellow, you know, you do this and then you do that. And it, it, you know, it was like a linear approach. And now, you know, it's like a palette uh, painter's palette with different paint choices. And, you know, you, you know what you want to paint, but you can make all these different choices about how to get there. So there's no one right way to do that. And I, I love that about ophthalmology. We have a goal, but we have lots of different ways of trying to achieve it and we can personalize it to the patient. And do you offer those options to your patients? Like, do you find you're more directive? Do you let the patient decide? Is it different for everybody? Yeah, it's different for everybody and it depends on the patient. So, you know, we curate the choices for the patients. So we're not going to offer them every option. We're going to say, you know, in this situation, here's, here's our goal. And here are two or three ways of getting here. And here are the pros and cons of each, but, you know, we're not going to offer them, you know, for, for glaucoma surgery, we're not going to offer them, you know, 10 choices <laughs> that's overwhelming to them, but we can, it's the same with refractive surgery. You'll, you'll steer them to the one that you think is best for them. Exactly. Yeah. Based on assessment, based on, you know, you're not going to offer something that, you know, is just not going to be safe for them. So I completely agree offering them, you know, what's available. That's going to be safe at the same time, but it allows us more choices so we can personalize our care for the patients. And I think in ophthalmology, we've in multiple areas increasingly have options and we can choose the one that's best for the patient sitting in the chair in front of us. Yeah. I love that. That's such a wonderful attitude. That's what's so great about ophthalmology is even, you know, since I finished fellowship a handful of years ago, 
there's so much more available that we didn't even have just, you know, and so I'm excited to see what's even coming up in the future. And, you know, this LASIK discussion kind of leads me into our last question that I wanted to touch on, which is the epidemic of myopia. Um, and, you know, there's, again, I think some myths going around, but maybe also some truths about near work and myopia, you know, that whole old adage of just reading too much when you're a kid, you know, make it that you need glasses later on. Um, and so what are your thoughts on that? What does the research really show us about myopia? Yeah, well, the research is unfolding. So um, there, there are some ongoing studies right now, but um, the research would suggest that there is an association with near work and um, increasing nearsightedness. Um, we have the most data um, out of some of the Asian countries where the myopia um, epidemic is um, is more severe than it is in some other countries. But even in the U.S., it's definitely increasing over the last couple generations. So we have a lot more nearsightedness and increasingly we find evidence that it's associated with near work. Now, the other thing is, is that getting data around uh, interventions and it, it appears, uh, and again, we're still collecting data, but um, for example, um, it appears that some of the interventions may slow the development of myopia. For example, um, there's a very good study. Um, there actually there are two really good studies in Asian countries that show that kids that get, you know, 60 to 90 minutes of outdoor activity every day, 40 to 80 minutes, I think one of the studies was, um, but, you know, significant outdoor activity every day actually slowed their progression of the myopia. So, um, you know, it's amazing that we've developed this indoor culture where kids have to study, 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 study all the time. And now we're saying, wait, maybe what, your parents did, or my generation did was, you know, they kicked us outside and we played till sundown. Maybe that wasn't such a bad idea after all. And do they think it's the, you know, focusing far away for that period of time? Do they think it's the sunlight? What effect do they think playing outside? Like probably we should all be doing even as adults is uh, it's beneficial <laughs> to play outside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's still being elucidated, but yes, those are some of the ideas. Um, so, um, there, there are some studies um, looking at playing outside. There's actually a project in China where they've created glass schools. So schools where you bring light in, and that's based on the idea that sunlight um, and you know some of the rhythms um, have something to do with it. So um, that's still unfolding. Um, and then of course, there's the treatment with low-dose atropine, which there's increasing evidence that low-dose atropine helps slow the progression of myopia. That's really interesting about bringing the light kind of indoors with the glass schools as well. I mean, I have to say here in New York City, the weather just started to turn and started to get a little bit better with the advent of spring. And I feel like everybody's moods have lifted. And so I definitely think there's something to be said for bringing, uh, bringing us more outside or even outdoors more, more to us. So. Right. Well, thank you so much for, you know, giving your time to kind of bust some of these myths in ophthalmology that commonly get spread. Uh, I think there's even more that we could talk about. And anyone listening to this podcast, please reach out across, you know, social media to Dr. Williams, to myself, to Blake. And if there's anything that you're still wondering about, let us know. Let's get those positive messages out there. Let's kind of go back to science and uh, continue to educate our patients and even each other. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ashley. Really great to talk to you and it's a fun conversation. Thank you to Dr. Williams for joining this episode of Off the Grid. 
And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time.